This is a message by Pastor Mark Fox at Antioch Community Church in Elon, North Carolina. For more information about the church, go to antiochchurchnc.org. Morning, everybody. I'm glad you're here. When Mark reminded me, Pastor Fox, when he reminded me, it was my turn to read the scriptures for this morning. I, I just started to think about this letter. It's kind of an amazing thing that we have a letter from a guy who was basically a nobody that Jesus chose to be one of his apostles. In that letter, he wrote to a bunch of other nobodies, and, but it was valuable enough to them for it to be copied again and again and again and eventually make it to bookstores where we have access to it. It's kind of an amazing testimony that God wants us to have this and to consume it together. Today we read from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 to 7. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Good morning, saints. Good morning. Those who are with us online, thank you, Caleb and worship team and Brent. So one of the, the wake-up calls that uh, happened in my life as a teenager was when my dad found out that I was skipping school. As a junior, I thought, I mean, do we really need to go to school five days a week? So I was skipping one day a week on, a regu- on the regular, and he found out. He sat me down, and he said this. As long, some of you dads could repeat this speech, right? As long as you are living in my house, and you're eating, and you're wearing. I can't wear your clothes, Ed. You're 6'3". But you get the point. As long as you're in this house, you're eating my food, you're, you're wearing clothes that I bought for you, you will go to school every day. Come on, Dad. Well, that was the indicative connected to the imperative. Here's the indicative. I love you. I'm not sure it was communicated the way he wanted it to, but he was saying, I love you, and I provide for you. All right, that's the indicative. Therefore, here's the imperative. You go to school every day. You will follow your calling, which right now your calling is to be a student. And you're going to do that to the best of your ability. Well, Peter says something similar here to his readers. He's going to connect the indicative to the imperative because really they cannot be separated in Scripture, right? He says because his divine power and his precious promises and everything that pertains to life and godliness has been given to you and you are free from the corruption that was sin, because of that you will make every effort to grow up. To become established in the truth, to live a godly life, to enjoy the fruit of your relationship with Jesus Christ. So let's look at this passage today under three points. Every effort, add three, and then add four more. First of all, why do some Christians think they have to work really hard and sacrifice much to become a better athlete, a a valuable employee, a talented musician, a great mock trial participant, how about those guys, or a better spouse, 
But being a follower of Christ requires a little because, hey, it's all good. God loves me. He does love you. And it is God's love and it is Jesus' ultimate sacrifice on the cross that saved us and calls us to grow into character, the character and the godliness and the goodness of good works. This idea is captured in a way, I think, by Solomon. You know that passage in Proverbs 24 that starts like that. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard, or in this case a house, of well, that looks like a vineyard around that house, doesn't it? Of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles. Its stone walls broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep. A little slumber, a little skipping of school, no, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Now listen, don't, don't hear what Solomon's not saying there. God's not saying don't sleep. He's not saying don't rest. Some of you need to sleep more and rest more because you're burning the candle at both ends. As Emily Dickens said, I burn the candle at both ends. It will not last the night. But oh, my friends, oh, my foes, it makes a lovely light. Yeah, it does, but it's going to burn you up. So a little slumber, a little sleep, when it comes to what you're supposed to be doing, that's when you get in trouble. Taking care of your vineyard, taking care of your work, taking care of your family, taking care of your relationship with Jesus. That's what Peter's all about here. That's what he's talking about here. A little sleep, a little slumber instead of pursuing the Lord. So he says, make every effort to do these things. Do these things and do them with effort and do them now with haste because look, there's the tyranny of the urgent and most of the time the, the urgent things are not the important things and these are the important things. There's no question that these things, adding these and developing these in our life is more important than just about anything. We still go to work, we still take care of our family, but our relationship with Jesus is more important than anything else. And we're to add them, and it requires sacrifice and effort. That's why I use the word, make every effort. It's going to require effort. You know that, right? Look, remember, saints, your faith to believe was a gift. There was no effort that were required in your faith. God gave you faith to believe in Jesus, you didn't add anything to that. You simply received that faith and, there, and therefore you were, you were saved. Grace also is a gift and God gives that not just at salvation. We're learning that in this book. May, why would Peter pray, may grace and peace be multiplied to you if grace only came at salvation? Grace is a gift every single day. He adds grace every single day to us, Right? But our job, our job is, and grace has given us to build our faith and to enable us, our job is to use that grace to ena- to, that, to, that he's enabling us to add these things to our faith. Remember, you are not saved by works, but you are saved to works, right? The, the old fire insurance, you know, joke about, yeah, I got, my, I got my fire insurance paid up. I don't have to do nothing now. No, that's a, that's a lie. If you're, if you're truly saved, it's not that you have to do something. It's you want to do something because God's Spirit is in you provoking you towards good works for the sake of Christ. 
So why do we need to make every effort to add these qualities to our faith? Look at verse 8. He tells us. We'll get to this next week. If these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Put it in a positive way. You add these things so that you will be fruitful and effective. Effective and fruitful in your knowledge of Jesus, which makes you effective and fruitful in your ministry to the world. Your ministry to the saints. Your ministry that he's called, called all of us to. This list of qualities, by the way, that Peter tells us to work on, you know this. It's not a, this is from the ESV study Bible, it's not a legalistic code, but rather the desires and features of a transformed heart. I mean, look, if, if holiness was as easy as removing a television from our house, if that's your definition of holiness is that you don't have TV, or if it's as easy as, you know, making sure your wife and your daughters always wear dresses, if that's what holiness means to you, then, hey, we can all be just about perfect, can't we? Hello? But it's not that. This list goes beyond external things and goes to the matters of the heart. These qualities require His divine power, which He freely gives to all of us, to, to work these out and work these in to our lives. So what are these qualities we're, to told, we're told to make every effort to add? Peter's going to present them to us, and you probably have seen this in other places in the Scripture, but it's a literary device, and some people just call it a, a literary ladder. It's a ladder of sorts, where one quality builds on the qualities before it. Sorry about that. The, the qualities before it, and it goes up to the top. Paul does the same thing in Romans 5. You know that passage in Romans 5 where Paul talks about the transformation that starts with suffering? Suffering is good because it leads to endurance. And endurance is good because it leads to character. You know what the next one is? Character is good because it leads to hope. And hope does not disappoint. Because God's love has been poured out in our hearts. So that's a literary ladder in Romans 5. Here's the one that Peter uses in 2 Peter 1. So let's look at this ladder. Let's talk about the first point, which is, or second point, which is add three. He says, first, add virtue. Add virtue. This word means excellence of character. Virtue is excellence of character. It's used the same way, the same word is used in 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter refers to God's character. Here it is. He says, but you... You folks in Jesus are a chosen race. You're a royal priest at a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's the indicative. That's what's true about us. Here's the imperative. That you may proclaim the excellencies, that's the word virtue, of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It's interesting here. The excellencies of God... His moral character, his virtue provokes him to do something to benefit others. He's a, we, we are the benefactors of God's virtue. And now Peter's saying, hey, you add virtue so that you can bless others, so that you can be a, 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 you know, a, a someone who gives to other people. It's an important note about moral character. It produces good that benefits others. 
Moral character develops as we seek to excel in doing the right thing with the right attitude so that others are blessed. Say that again. Moral character is doing the right thing with the right heart attitude so that other people are blessed as a result. I like what Green said. He said, the person marked by virtue is engaged socially. God could have sat up there in heaven and never created a thing and not bless anybody. But virtue is a blessing to others. I mean, Jesus said it like that. He said, let your light shine before others. Don't hide it under a bushel so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Right? So our virtue is going to bless others because that's what virtue does. God's virtue blessed us. Our virtue blesses others and brings glory to God. Second, he says, add knowledge. That's the word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S. And that's where we get the word agnostic. We've talked about that a little bit. But gnosis, which simply means to know. But in this context, he says, when when he says add knowledge, he's not talking about theoretical knowledge or philosophical knowledge. There are people who are filled up with philosophical knowledge. And they don't know beans when it comes to the things that are important. And in fact, what it means is relational. This is relational knowledge. Relational knowledge. Remember in the first letter when Peter says, Husbands, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. According to understanding. In other words, hey, if you want to be a good husband to your wife, then you need to know your wife. You need to have a relational knowledge of your wife and know how to love her, how to bless her, how to lead her, how to take care of her. And so it's a relational depth. Can, can we, we need to make every effort to get to know God. Not just to know about Him, but to know Him. Peter, uh, Paul wrote in Romans eleven three, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. So what he's saying there, we cannot know God perfectly because we are what? We're, we're finite and He's infinite. We cannot know Him perfectly. But we can grow in our knowledge of God through his word and through prayer. Here it is, the last verse in the book. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We can do that. We can grow in that. In fact, Peter urges us to do that through his word. Look at verse 19 for a second. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well You'll do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. We can grow in the knowledge of the Lord. In fact, John wrote a similar thought in his epistle, 1 John 1, 3. says, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Why? Why do you do that, John? So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, John's saying... I'm telling you these things about God and about knowing Him and about love and about being sincere so that you will have a better knowledge relationally of who the Father is and you will know Him better. So add to your faith knowledge. Third, he says add self-control. Now, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Where do we find that? Where did Paul write about the fruit of the Spirit? Remember? Carlene! There you go. In Galatians 5, you find the fruit of the Spirit. When the Spirit dwells in us, this is the fruit that should be growing and developing in us. 
And here it is. He says, add self-control. It's an evidence of the Holy Spirit working in us to die to self. My father helped me with that when he said, go to school. I had to die to self. They want to stay home and watch truth or consequences. What in the world was I thinking? We, we die to self. We make every effort to submit to the Spirit and allow Him to control our words. That's hard as for some people. <clears throat> Uh, or our actions, that's hardest for others, or our appetites, that's hardest for still others. In fact, self-control has to do with those three areas of life, primarily the things that we have to say no to our flesh. And, and saints, listen, all the self-help books in the world are helpless to help one who's not added self-control to his faith. Self-help books aren't the answer. It is dying to self. Take up your cross daily, Jesus said. Die daily. And then learn to say no to your flesh. It's a lifelong process. And, you know, it's not a brass ring we can grab like on the merry-go-round. And now we have it and we'll never lose it. Self-control is a continual die. And what they say, there's no, there's no fool worse than an old fool. And we don't want to be old fools. So we die to this stuff when you're young men and middle-aged men and women so that we're not old fools in our 60s or 70s. And then there's four more. He said, next, add steadfastness. Steadfastness. Now, the word there means to persevere or to remain under. It means to endure. It means endurance. The word here is different from the Greek word that means to have patience with people. That's a different Greek word altogether. This, mean, this word is associated with hope that gives us endurance not to give up while in a difficult circumstance. I couldn't help but think of the story, The Boys in the Boat. It's a great movie, and it's an even better book. Trust me, it really is an excellent book. The physical and the mental endurance that those eight young men from the University of Washington had to develop in order to win Olympic gold in 1936, I think it was, is impossible for anyone in here to understand unless you've ever been a member of a crew team. And I think there's probably only one of us who's been on a crew team. But look, listen to what Daniel James Brown wrote in his book. And think about this for a second. All right? How many of you have ever played basketball on a team? You, know, you played 40 minutes of, of basketball. Okay, look at this quote. Physiologists have calculated that rowing a 2,000-meter race, the Olympic standard, takes the same physiological toll as playing two basketball games back-to-back, and it exacts that toll in about six minutes. That's the kind of endurance that God is calling us to have spiritually, you know? And what Peter is calling here is to add not physical stamina, but let me just say, that's a good thing to add too. That's why Paul said, you know, exercise yourself towards godliness. But he also said physical exercise is profitable for some things. Spiritual exercise is profitable for many things. They're both profitable. Add physical stamina. Because sometimes that's what's required to keep our mind from giving up. If our body's saying, come on, you can do it, you know, to your mind... It's usually our mind that gives up first, right? And it's telling your body, yeah, you don't have to do this anymore. Just stop working. We're just going to quit. What we need most is hope in Christ that no matter how hard the struggle is, we stay in the boat. We stay in the boat. We keep the oar and we keep it working. 
We press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's the kind of the idea that Peter is getting at here when he says add endurance. Fifth, he says add godliness. And we talked about godliness last week because Peter mentions it in verse 3. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And I told you last week that in a Roman perspective in that world, that word can be translated and understood better as duty. Obligations, duty, doing your moral duty. And so through, through that, Peter doubles down here, reminding his readers that we're rowing in the same boat. We're called by God and given grace to fulfill our duty in Christ. So add endurance so that then you can add duty and you will do what you need to do to be an effective brother and sister in Christ to those around you, and an effective son and daughter to Christ, uh, your Lord. You know, this standard he's calling us to here, godliness, is going to stand in stark contrast to the false po- uh, prophets that he's going to address in chapter 2. He says they secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Sixth, Peter says, add brotherly affection. The word there is Philadelphia. That's the word in Greek that means brotherly love. And remember, we're family and we're privileged to have the Holy Spirit who draws us toward one another in love. And that's why Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection. That's not holding your brother in a headlock so you can give him a noogie. Because Paul goes on to say, outdo one another in honor, uh, showing honor. So brotherly affection has honor as a motive and has honor as, a, as a, an effect or a result. You know, we, we love our brothers and sisters because we honor them because they are created in the image of God. And they are our family we will be with forever. And so we, we love them because we honor them. And as we honor them and love them, then they are blessed and they grow in their understanding of how God loves them as well. We're to outdo one another in showing honor. It's especially important for us who are in the same boat that we call Antioch. Again, Daniel James Brown. What mattered more than how hard a man rode was how well everything he did in the boat harmonized with what the other fellows were doing. And a man couldn't harmonize with his crewmates unless he opened his heart to them. He had to care about his crew. He had to care about his crew. If we're going to row this boat effectively together, and I think we have done so for 36 and a half years, and we continue to do that and get even better at rowing this boat together, then it's going to require that we love each other. We take care of one another, that we get to know one another. We have to know each other in order to function effectively as a team. I love what Hubert Davis says, go Heels. It was a great game last night. Uh, He says to his players, guys, you can't play for me unless you know me. And you can't play for me unless I know you. He requires each of his players to come to his office at least once a week to talk about anything but basketball. And if they don't come, if they forget, then there's some some, uh, steps he takes on that. But he wants to have a relationship with his players. We have that same desire. We can't row together unless we know each other. Rowing is knowing. Knowing is rowing. Okay, that's, out, that's off the script. Let's keep going. Seventh, he says, and by the way, 
Paul said this, we are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by our, by our opponents. That's, that's a strong word there, Paul. You're saying that as the people of God, as the brothers and sisters of Christ, he's talking to the church in Philippi, but this applies to Christians everywhere. If we are walking in Christ together, we should not be frightened by anything. Our opponents should not shake us from our game, should not move us out of the boat, should not make us lay down the oar and give up. Because we have one another, but more importantly, we have God, we have Christ, we have the Spirit, we have grace, we have the promise that by God's grace, we will not fail. Seventh, this is the top of the rung, he said, add love. That word there is agape, the word Philadelphia is brotherly love, this is agape, and you know what that means, everybody say it, it means what kind of love? Unconditional love. Not I love you because... I love you because you sing so pretty. I love you because, oh, you're, you're just such a nice person. I love you because you, you help me, you know, when I need help. No, that's conditional. I love you, period. If God didn't have an unconditional love for us, would he have sent his son to die for us? No. No. If it was I love you because or I love you if or I love you when we still be lost in our sins and on our way to hell. This is the pinnacle. This is the top rung. This is the crown jewel of these seven qualities that we make every effort to add to our lives and our character. And it's the best and sweetest fruit of all. Agape is unconditional, displayed for us in God who so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God's love provoked him to give. And that's what agape love does. Biblical love, and this is Matthew Harmon, biblical love is not a feeling provoked by the beauty of its object, not I love you because, but rather is a commitment of the heart, mind, and soul to pursue what is best for the one being loved. We love each other. We're going to pursue what's best for one another. And sometimes what's best for one another is we come alongside a brother and say, brother, let me just tell you, I love you, and that's why I'm going to help you through this challenge you have right now. I love you, and you need to stop doing this, you know, in the way that you, you're leading your family or, or not leading your family. So sometimes that's the way we love each other, right? Through the truth that hurts. We speak the truth in love that we may, in all things, Paul said, and may all, in all things grow up into him who is the head, into Christ. But we do what's best for one another. This agape love is what marks the people of God in such an unmistakable way that the people outside the faith have to see it and they have to know that we belong. Not just to one another, but we belong to Jesus. Jesus said to his disciples after they had taken communion together in the upper room, which we're going to do in a, in a minute in this room, he said, a new, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And the word there is agape. If you agape one another. Let me close with this before we pray. That's, I, thank, I thank God for the ways that you 
are making every effort to add these evidences of grace to your lives. I mean, the way that you open your heart, hearts to one another, the way you give to others, the way you support one another in prayer, the way you persevere through trials together, the way you seek to really know one another. I praise God for the good work He's doing in us and with us and through us. And I have to say with the psalmist, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these imperatives that you've given us because the indicatives are true, that you have given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You've given us uh, divine power. We are partakers of God's nature. Even to think of that blows my mind, but Lord, you have brought us into the fellowship of the saints in your family as your children. So Lord, as we have been given these steps on the ladder to take, to, to take one at a time and to add these, Lord, give us grace as, as I know you do every day and help us to see that grace and to receive that grace and walk in it so that we will add to our faith virtue and to our virtue, self-knowledge uh, and self-control, and all the way up to agape love. For your sake and for the blessing that comes to this body as a result and to the watching world, that they may know that we belong to Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. Antioch Community Church meets every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at 1600 Powerline Road in Elon, North Carolina. For more information, please go to AntiochChurchNC.org.